Hi guys, welcome to another episode of You Can't Podcast with Kids. I'm joined, joined today rather by Boti and Lawrence. Um, we have Boti for the first segment of this episode. Um, going to be talking about La Liga. Um, how's La Liga going, Boti? Quite a trite question, I know, but how is it going? Give us an update. Hi guys, nice to be on again. So I've come on the pod for probably the last three months and always said Atletico's won the league. And for a brief moment this weekend, when Atletico dropped points against Levante, a team that's really shaping up to uh, having caused problems in the last last few encounters, I I had a a quick glimpse of of hope. Well, maybe maybe this is where Barcelona can come back. Of course, Barcelona also dropped points, but Real Madrid, on the other hand, didn't. So Atletico, um, they've been a bit cagey in the... In the last in the last few weeks, they've actually dropped points um, in the last uh, four or five weeks. So it's it's tightened up at the top of the league. Um, it was one nil to Levante. Atletico were the better team still. They could have scored about five or six, but it just wasn't their day. Real Madrid uh, actually won one nil. Also, a, a, not a convincing victory. But the thing about Madrid is always even when even when they're playing bad, they seem to scrape the results. Um, so fair play to them. And Barcelona, um, I was telling Lawrence before this, I had a huge rant on the last podcast with him about everything wrong at the club. And really, you could just copy and paste that exact same rant into into this one I'm about to have. Um, the exact same problems, the exact same team. Clement Longley should not be in Barcelona. I will pay you to somebody. Please take him away. Um, just horrible performance, horrible managerial problems at Barcelona right now um, I'm gutted because that was our chance to get within six points of Atletico and now we're still eight away What's happened to Real Madrid though Bosi because you know we've been used to them in the last few years sort of you know scoring goals aplenty with Ronaldo at the at the helm but obviously now they seem to you know barely score they seem to scrape like one goal wins um, why why aren't they so sort of cohesive at the front as they, they used to be, as we're accustomed to them seeing? Is it just simply the fact that Ronaldo isn't there to spearhead the attack, or is it Zidane sort of opting for a more defensive approach? I, I think there's 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 a lot going on with Real Madrid's tactics, their their lineup that's that's influencing this. So um, when they they used to have Ronaldo and uh, out on the wing, you know, driving the attacks forward and going pretty goal goal goal-oriented, uh, going for goal, whereas you have Vinicius now, um, Hazard, when, I, when he actually plays. They, they don't really seem to have that same, that same direct threat. They seem to muck around with the ball a lot. Benzema has been good for the first half of the season. He's kind of slowed down a bit now. And I think fundamentally what's changed is the, the, the midfield. The midfield of Real Madrid has really slowed down. They're not supplying the same kind of... The same kind of um, opportunities for the for the strikers although that being said Casemiro has stepped up in the last few weeks and uh, and he has been scoring when he gets the chance I think is a header in this game as well um tactics wise how I don't I don't think Zidane's become less less um inclined to attack I think he's he's just working with a a changing team as Barcelona is also but look, um, as as long as they're getting the wins, I I wouldn't I wouldn't say anything needs to be changed. Hi, Boti. Uh, hi, hello. Um, hi, was there any was there any fullback from 
or fall out from Real Sociedad's kind of abject performance against United in the Europa League midweek? Or was there like an acceptance that United sort of outplayed them on the day? No, in the in the Spanish media there wasn't there wasn't anything you know outrageous said about Sociedad. There was a bit of praise for for, for Manchester, yeah. But whatever whatever happened, they they had a four 0 win against Alaves this weekend, so clearly bounced back very strong. And um, I wouldn't count them out yet, Lawrence. We're also joined by. Oh, sorry, Lawrence, do you want to add something? No, to I just wanted to like. Why, why are you doing this to me, Bradley? Like four <laughs> 0 in the first leg, uh, like an away game as well. I mean, come on. Ah, anyway. We're also joined by Ash, who's now entered the pod. Ash, I wanted to ask you just a general question, quite a broad question. What do you think of Atletico Madrid, just as a club? as a sort of institution, as, a, as the sort of machine that they've turned into in the last sort of decade or so. What do you think of Atletico Madrid? Um, I am quite a fan of them to the extent they always have the nice underdog quality. They're similar to um, uh, kind of Everton, historically, something like that, or Man City. Um, yet they've had very good success over the last 10 years. They got to a couple of European Cup finals. They won the league. They're looking on course this season. Um, in terms of Simeone... Like, I've never really been a massive fan of pragmatic managers. I've always preferred more exciting managers, but I've got to respect him. And, and I think he's he now is what Mourinho wishes he was. Mm. Um, and I really admire the way they played for so many years with Godin and Jimenez in a, in a manner that was going out of fashion. Um, and they were always competing, and it seemed like they were they were competing bullishly with teams that just had better players. And I respected that way of playing the game. Um, so as a, as a club, I don't mind them at all. They seem to be well run. I like the fact they've got a new stadium. They've been very unfortunate at certain times in their history. So I guess I've got I've got no nothing against them having some success now. It's not artificial like it was with Man City or Chelsea or or um, PSG. Yeah, because cards on the table. I really like Atletico Madrid. I, I admire them as a club. I admire Simeone what he's done for them. Um, you know, in his time 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 at the club, and you know, I, I always sort of root for them. You know as they are the sort of underdog in Spain, the underdog in Europe in terms of the big boys as well. And I always sort of like them going ahead and, you know, going as far as possible in Europe, which is why when the draw came out for the round of 16, I was a bit annoyed that we'd, we'd drawn them because, you know, I like Atletico, I'd like to see them go far. Um, I'm also quite worried about uh, this game um, coming up midweek in the Champions League because I think that we will be outclassed by Atletico. Obviously, they look imperious in the league. Um, they faltered slightly, as Brotis mentioned, in the last sort of week or so. Um, they're still sort of, I would say, favourites to win the league. Bosley, what do you think about their chances against Chelsea? Or rather, what do you think about Chelsea's chances against Atletico? It's it's a it's a tough one, isn't it? They're they're two teams that can um, both really perform on the night or both disappear. I I think um, Atletico does have the edge in this tie, but um, certainly it could go either way. It 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 really depends, in my opinion, on whether uh, Chelsea or not can. Under Tuchel, you know they've they've shown this new style of attack. Um, if they can replicate that, penetrate Atletico's solid back line, and similarly, you know, keeping Suarez out, he's a threat. Yeah, I mean, we don't have we don't have Thiago Silva anymore in in the team. He's injured, so that'll be quite you know a bad uh, sort of omen for Chelsea. We'll probably play Christensen and Rudiger at back, which was the same sort of defence that was so terrible against Barcelona last time we reached the knockouts. The uh, Champions League, so I'm not sure how it'll go. So yeah, um, Lawrence, you about to say something about Atletico? Yeah, I'm really not surprised that Ashwin likes Atletico, especially because he's currently donning the headband look 
that has been adopted by many Atletico players <laughs> like Fernando Torres and Diego Forlan before him. Um, on Atletico, though, I, 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 really, I find the comparison with Jose and Simeone very interesting because we could, we could say that they, they used to have very similar styles, but I think what Simeone has done this season is shown that he's more of a pragmatist than Mourinho is. Instead of, you know, frustratingly going for that uh, sort of counter-attacking style um, that he did in the past, the fact that he no longer has obviously that that famous back four of Felipe Luis, Juan Fran, Godin, and was it was it Miranda? Is that was that mm-hmm. the other centre? Yeah. Um, now he's got he's, he's really reformed the team using Luis Suarez, of course. Um, to, to become more of a possession-based team. And I think what what um, what Simeone has shown this season is that he's not Mourinho. You know, Mourinho, he's, he's just, Mourinho seems to be stubbornly sticking to his ridiculous philosophy, no matter how much it hurts um, Hongmin-son and Harry Kane's bodies. Um, and I think that Simeone has been very impressive and, and definitely deserves all the success that they've had so far this season. Yeah, I mean, I personally, if I was picking sort of the four best managers of this last decade, I would certainly put Simeone, Simeone in there um, alongside Klopp, Klopp, Guardiola and Conte. Um, Ash? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I, I agree with Lawrence about, about Simeone. I mean, in terms of Chelsea, um, it, you know, Atletico are kind of made for these games in the same way Mourinho was maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um with, with, you know, ability to perform on the night, just spoil a game if they get a 1-0 lead, very organised. Um, and, and you know, your only chance is scoring first or, or making sure that they have the imperative to actually go forward because otherwise they're, they're happier as Mourinho is without the ball, to be frank. Um, and I think in terms of how you rate Simeone, I think it's quite interesting to the extent that his style is obviously pragmatic and it's successful in some ways, but they haven't won the league for a very long time, given Barcelona's domestic dominance, particularly this decade and before that, Zidane's. Um, and I actually don't think that in the Premier League, he would have lasted that long without winning the league playing in that style. Um, because there is some demand, surely, in the Premier League for excitement, for, um, you know, we admire someone like a Brighton over maybe a Burnley. Um, just because of the way that they play. Um, we admired Norwich last year, even though they they, they struggled. Um, and, and I think that's interesting, just a cultural difference between Spain and Italy versus England. Um, and yeah. I think that sort of speaks more towards how he sort of embodied Atletico Madrid and how he's sort of taken them from a, a conventional sort of mid-table team, which they were in the years before he took over, to, you know, a team that properly punching about the weight, consistently qualifies for the Champions League, gets the finals of the Champions League, wins the Europa League, so I, I don't know. I feel like he's sort of his job security is so strong that he's never going to be in charge of you know being under the cosh at Atletico. Um, and I guess like you know because of this pragmatist sort of play that he has Atletico doing. Um, yeah, I mean I, I, I I'm not sure whether he he'd be such a flexible manager to sort of take change his style up if he ever goes to another league, maybe like an Inter Milan or or I don't know a, a club in England, but. Yeah, I mean, personally, anyway, um, I think he's like one of the best managers there is. Yeah, I mean, before Lawrence comes in, because I know he'd want to say something about this as well. Um, there, there is the interesting thing that Jonathan Wilson writes well about this, as he does about most things, to be frank. Um, 
that you know football in the last decade has moved away from Mourinho style more back towards the Barcelona Ajax style of of expansive play possession based football intensity embodied by the Guardiola teams at the start of the decade and the end of the last decade to Bayern Munich and Liverpool now um and how that style has kind of gone out of fashion the pragmatic style of the previous decade um embodied by Arsene Wenger before in the first half of his Arsenal career, embodied by Mourinho and, and now Simeone. And so it's interesting that Simeone's style has persisted and still remains successful in this decade, despite the kind of tide of football going against him. Uh, because Wilson writes very evocatively about, you know, attacking stages and defensive stages of football styles. Um, and, you know, how Italian 90 brought an exciting style in the 90s. And then that regressed back to a more pragmatic style with Mourinho himself. And then now we're back to attacking again. Um, so I find Simeone's kind of position against the grain, the kind of counterculture, quite quite interesting, um, because he's not really hated by opposition fans. You wouldn't say that because he doesn't make provocative statements in press conferences. So it seems sometimes that this way of playing, which can spoil a game in a way that is often derided, especially in England, does go under the radar radar to the extent that Simeone is not an antagonistic person personally. So I'd I'd like to quickly disagree with what Ashwin said, if I may. I, I I think that Simeone used to definitely used to play in that sort of pragmatic style. In not as in not pragmatic, he's always been pragmatic, but more physical, that four four two, um, you know, comfortable without the ball. But I think as I as I said before, that he has moved with the time somewhat this season. The signing of Luis Suarez has meant that Atletico can't play in that kind of quick counter-attacking style that he could with a player like um, Diego Costa or a player like Antoine Griezmann. Um, I think under, under well, with the attacking talent like Joao Felix, um, Thomas Lamar, Marcos Llorente, um, and obviously now Luis Suarez, Atletico are developing that more progressive style that I think is really benefiting them this season. I mean, they've scored more goals than Real Madrid. They've only scored five goals less than, than Barcelona. I think that, that Simeone has adapted his style somewhat and quite, uh, quite um, you know, expansively this season. Yeah, whilst also keeping the sort of, you know, defensive solidity, I think they've only conceded 16 goals in the league um, this season and obviously leading the way in clean sheets. Um, that is Atletico Chelsea. I think we will sort of agree that overall Atletico will get past um, Chelsea in the tie. Um, I, I feel it will be quite a comprehensive sort of win for Atletico here. Let's move on to manager who's sort of almost the opposite um, of Simeone in his pragmatism, someone who's very gung-ho in his style of play, and this will be a nice segue to the Premier League. Uh, Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool, who lost uh, 2-0 at home to Everton um, at Anfield. Uh, quite a shock result. Um, would you say Ashwin, or would you say this was sort of a surprise? Oh, sorry, would you say this was rather an expected result for, for your boys? Um, it's surprising to the extent that basically Everton haven't won at Anfield since I was born. Um, and so that was obviously surprising, something that, that happens that infrequently happens again. But after the first second when Kabak headed out a, 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 a very routine ball over the top for a corner unnecessarily, I knew that something had just gone completely wrong. And they duly scored very quickly and um, we had no joy for the rest of the game. Um, Liverpool have had issues going forward um, for a very long time this season um, and they actually haven't been too bad uh, they haven't conceded too many goals since the defensive injuries despite having something like 20 different defensive partnerships this season um, 
But this time, and in the, in the Leicester game, the, the, the defence completely fell apart. Kabak doesn't look comfortable. Nat Phillips looks very comfortable. So I don't know why he doesn't start and he hasn't been playing more. But Kabak does not look comfortable. Um, and he was shown up defensively. And in terms of the attacking issues, it, it, the fact that Liverpool, their only big win in the last three months was against Leipzig. And that was just Salah and, and Mane profiting in behind off two defensive errors by their centre-backs. That wasn't anything created by us, although we did create chances. So Liverpool have now issues um, at the back that, accom- that accompany their long-standing issues going forward. And that's a massive concern because obviously that's both sides of the pitch, isn't it? Um, in On a note of positivity, Nat Phillips was good. Um, Everton definitely deserved the win, by the way. I'm not taking anything away from them. They performed pragmatically. Um, Richarlison finished beautifully. They did what they needed to do. Pickford was outstanding, which seemed that it was, it was inevitable after ruining Liverpool's season in the last meeting. Um, so, you know, that was something that seemed inevitable. So fair play to him. He, he, he might have given himself another chance at starting for England, unfortunately, in the, in the uh, Euros after that Great. Point. A blessing. Um, so, you know, that's, that's maybe not ideal from an England perspective, but it's good for him. So well done to him. Um, and This um, doesn't sound bitter at all. <laughs> no. And, and you know, well done to them. Um, Liverpool now need to take some confidence from the fact that Phillips looks good. Need to take confidence from the fact that they beat Leipzig and, and the fact that Diego Jota is back in training on Wednesday. Full training. And if they can take confidence from that, then maybe top four isn't gone yet but it certainly looks like it's pretty out of reach now which was unthinkable at the start of the season um and which poses massive issues long term in terms of the next transfer window and where Liverpool start next season so it's a pretty bleak time um and James Pierce has written today about how Liverpool definitely need a new number nine at minimum in the in the window uh because Firmino is not producing the goods anymore uh for whatever reason whether it's no fans whether it's age whether it's no legs whatever but he, he doesn't seem good enough at all. So Liverpool do need a new number nine. And Diego Jota, in addition to Jota coming back. So, yeah, Liverpool can, need to take whatever confidence they can from the next few games, but they need to weather this as best as they can. And if they don't make the Champions League, they need to deal with it and make some big signings regardless. Um, it's a massive shame that, that Van Dijk, Salah, Mane wouldn't be playing in the Champions League at the age of 29 or whatever they'll be. Um, but there you go. Yeah, I was, about, I was about to pose that question to you about the athletic article with um, Firmino sort of being touted as someone who needs replacing. Um, do you not think it's more likely, however, that that, that one-off Mane and Salah were to sort of um, go and be sold if 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 Liverpool don't make the top four? Um, I think one of them might be sold to the extent that Liverpool want to make funds to buy Mbappe or Haaland. Genuinely, that would be the only reason. Um, uh, because the Mbappe rumours. People laugh at them, but they are actually genuinely persistent. And something isn't that persistent if it isn't rooted somewhere. And you can say the same with United and Sancho. And lo and behold, those rumours came to fruition with a successive bidding, a successive few bids in the summer. So those rumours still exist. Liverpool would have to probably sell one of Salah or Mane to afford Mbappe or afford Haaland. Um, and neither of those people will come if Liverpool aren't in the Champions League, obviously. So if they're not in the Champions League, I think they'll they'll stick with them, um, because it wouldn't be like they could buy someone who's better, um, because who'd want to come if they're not in the Champions League already? Yeah. All of them are under contract as well, so for next season. Um, so yeah, 
Yeah, um, that's the same thing for Chelsea yeah, I mean, and Haaland. The point is, like, if we're not in the Champions League, the issue is replacing them with anyone better. So you won't be able to, so you just keep them. Lawrence? Yeah, a number of really great points from you guys. I'll try and sort of give my view on, on, on almost everything that you guys said. I think, first of all, the kind of... Obviously, Everton is a massive result for them. They've won for the first time uh, at Anfield this century, um, which is a great thing to say. I think the enduring image for me from this game will be the image of Richarlison absolutely doing Ozan Kabak on his way to score the first goal, just completely losing him. And I think Everton deserve a lot of credit for the way that they set up. And obviously, Ancelotti will take the vast majority of that credit. Um, I think Gary Neville... With regards to the centre back situation, having just mentioned how uh, we, you know, Kabak didn't look great, and obviously Jordan Henderson starting out of position, Gary Neville made I think a fantastic point about about Liverpool centre back woes, because um, there were there were you know large periods during Gary Neville's time at United where the centre backs were out. For example, Ferdinand and Vidic being injured. I remember Silvestre being injured for the whole of 2007. Sometimes, meaning that sometimes people like Carrick. And Neville would have to step in at centre-back. And what United would do is they'd play pragmatically. They'd, they'd, they'd chuck in probably... They wouldn't play Paul Scholes. They'd play somebody like Darren Fletcher in central midfield. And then they'd basically create a box around the centre-backs. Protect the centre-backs. Don't let the opposition forwards attack. Um, and what I think that Klopp might be... And Klopp might sort of take, have to take some blame is the fact that he has been, you could say, slightly tactically inflexible. We all agree that Henderson is much worse at centre back than he is in centre midfield, um, as what as Fabinho is also. But yet, when them two have to play at centre back, the midfield doesn't sort of drop in a manner that you would sort of expect, you know, your defensive midfielders to cover. So I think Klopp does deserve some sort of uh, Ashwin jump in, yeah. Yeah, of course, and I've been guilty myself, along with most other Liverpool fans, of not putting enough. Uh, of not criticising Jurgen Klopp sufficiently this year for very odd personnel decisions, whether that's peculiar substitutions, whether that's bizarrely not playing Curtis Jones, whether that's playing 4-4-2 against Crystal Palace, beating them 7-0 with Minamino being brilliant, not playing Minamino again and loaning him out, and not playing that system again. Firmino looked really good in that system, by the way. Um, and he's not persisted with 4-4-2 once since that game when we won 7-0, and we've, just, and we've lost four home games in a row. So it's not as if it's a bad time to try it. So, I mean, these are just things that I, that I don't understand. Maybe, you know, I'm not a coach. I could be missing something. Maybe I'm not privy, privy to some information, whether it's fitness information or tactical information that, you know, I'm not privy to and therefore, you know, I'm missing something. And that's whatever disclaimer. You're, um, but, but, you know, that just seems really bizarre to me from an outside perspective. You know, bash Crystal Palace, create so many chances playing 4-4-2. They're not even that bad a side, Crystal Palace. They're not going to go down this year. They're a solid Premier League side. Um, and you beat them away from home by that scoreline playing 4-4-2 and Minamino playing out of his mind. And then you let him go and you play Origi instead for the, for the next four games. And you don't touch that system again and you revert back to a 4-3-3 that, that obviously depends so much on Van Dijk and whomever else that it just doesn't seem to be working. So, you know, that just seems very, very bizarre to me. Um, I, I, one thing I would say before I pass it back is I think Thiago is getting undue hate. Um, you know, people have criticised him and said, oh, he's not fitting in with Liverpool. He's the cause of Liverpool's problems. Well, I don't think so at all. I saw someone say, you know, 
if you get whenever you get an ice cream, if you get sunburned, the issue isn't getting the ice cream, is it? Um, so you know, I, I think he's he. There's nothing wrong with with how he's playing. He's distributing the ball well. He's doing everything Wijnaldum does, but you know, um, better. So I, I think he's an easy scapegoat, and we need to look more deeply at Klopp's wider personnel and tactical decisions. Um, I I agree with what you said there about Ashton and Thiago. I've actually done a three sixty on Thiago, having watched Liverpool a lot more in the past few weeks. I feel like um, Thiago does a lot in possession for Liverpool, does create chances, does progress the ball quite a lot. And I think that he is getting undue criticism because he seems to be seen as that person who's rocked the boat. On to the, the striker issue at Liverpool. Um, I do see definitely see the argument for sort of getting rid of Firmino. I think that somebody who, who Liverpool could realistically look at, and I don't think Mbappe and Haaland are necessarily there, uh, as Liverpool targets. I think Memphis Depay, former United player, is actually a very good option for Liverpool. Um, I think he's out of contract really soon as well. Um, and he should, he's somebody with a lot of pace. He's shown a lot of leadership as well at, during his time at Lyon. I think he'd be a great player for Liverpool. The final thing I want to say on Liverpool, and I know Arjun wants to move on, but it's something that I don't think we've necessarily talked about yet. And I think, it's, I think we, we've all spoken in terms of Yes, Liverpool have had three great seasons and now they need to... And, and now you could see this as some sort of... They, they need kind of rest, you know, after the fury. And I think, um, again, Gary Neville has spoken about this. Jonathan Wilson has spoken about this. Football lives on three-year cycles, right? And I didn't really notice this before. But then now that I think about even United sides, they, you know, we had three years of dominance between, for example, 2007 and 2009. And then it went away for a year. And I never thought about this before, but I think it is it is time where, you know, Liverpool need to take stock after these three years and they need to maybe refresh their squad. And maybe they try to do this summer with Thiago. It hasn't worked yet. Um, but I think that we should definitely give them more time. Also, what I want to point out about Liverpool is that people have been very quick to sort of be harsh about Liverpool and say this is the worst titles offence, like, of all time again like very sort of rash comments um i think we can all agree it's not um by definition of title defense is the sort of proximity you have to first place rather than the proximity that you're displaying to your previous season so by that measure liverpool aren't you know that far off the pace in terms of like okay they are they are closer to the relegation zone than the ultimate man city but that's just a consequence of man city having the same season um and it's also a consequence by the of way, liverpool having such a good season would be 16 last. points of where man city are now same number. Yeah, again. yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I mean, as far as I'm aware, the worst sort of title defence of all time is potentially Chelsea for 15-16, uh, as in, um, and also less in the following season. But that was sort of expected. Um, Lawrence, I, I'm sure you concur with this point that you know Liverpool aren't anywhere near being the worst title defence. They only really have like a month and a half or two months of terrible form. Yeah, I I, I agree completely. I think. Yeah, before, well, after that Palace game, I think Liverpool went under this sort of it, almost inexplicable run of form. It's like, mm. it's sometimes inconceivable to me how Liverpool are this poor with the talent they have in the side. And I think it's at that point, because it's not just the results, it is the manner of the, the performances. You kind of have to look at Klopp it, to an extent, because... Um, the thing is, 
I mean, I think you're right to some extent, but just the performances have actually not been bad. Like you see a lot of Liverpool fans saying, I wish we could go back to playing poorly and winning because what we're doing now is playing well and losing. And, and like we, we are oftentimes, although we're, we're screwing up in the final third, we're not doing badly in possession, not making too many stupid, stupid errors. Um, it, 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 we're just massively underperforming our XG and not no one really knows why. It's kind of like that Guardiola problem, right? He had end of last season, start of this season, he almost had no answers as to why City weren't getting the results. Like, I remember a 1-0 loss against Southampton where Che Adam scored from the halfway line at the end of last season. And, and Guardiola said after the game, like, I don't know what else I can do with this team. He's, somehow Guardiola's managed to turn it around. Yeah, let's move on to City now. Because they, they won 1-0 at the Emirates. Um, I think this sort of era of Guardiola at City has been you know, marked by pragmatism, um, sort of slow, sort of progressive progression up the pitch, and like it's not. It's you know, in, in contrast to his first couple of seasons where they're blitzing goals past opponents, um, he's had sort of he's had to deal with like the injuries of Aguero and Jesus, perhaps underperforming, and he's sort of playing um, Sterling and Gundogan as sort of shadow strikers almost, and you know, doing very well. Um, I mean, obviously the title is going to City, um, but would you say this is a particularly sort of vintage Guardiola side in that it's so different from his previous um, iterations of any team, whether it's City, Barcelona or Bayern, um, and that he's shown like a sort of good flexibility in dealing with his sort of injuries, although obviously not as significant as, say, Liverpool's injury crisis? When, when City win the league, and it's, it's a wet nod and if, mm-hmm. I think this will be one of Guardiola's most impressive title wins. Maybe not the most, like, sort of aesthetically pleasing but I think the way he's dealt with the adversity let's not forget we're living in a pandemic right teams are dropping points left right and centre everyone in the top six every but somehow City have put together this remarkable winning run they're unbeaten in I think like 25 games in all competitions it's completely unheard of in Europe basically Um, so I think that with all that adversity that you said and as you said Arjun adapting his style of play I think this has got to be the most impressive of Guardiola's seasons. Ash? This has been a different season to other Guardiola seasons to the extent that Man City have been very defensively solid um, with Ruben Diaz and John Stones. Um, More solid than anyone would have expected them to be if you listed those names on paper at the start of the season. Um, And that's different to other Guardiola teams to the extent that although what's constant among all of them is a quality midfield that keeps the ball, can progress the ball forward very quickly and has brilliant movement, often the defences, especially in his earlier City sides and in some of his um, Barca sides, were often underrated or neglected or correctly rated and just didn't need to be that good. But here he's very clearly, by this defensive record, showing that he can coach a defensive centre-back partnership, that his persistence with John Stone has paid off. John Stones has paid off. I think that shows this is a very impressive season for him. Maybe it's most impressive tactically because of the players he's had at his disposal and the way that they've won. And that's just because also, you know, as I said, it's different to other seasons, which is why it's impressive. It's different because of the defensive solidity. And I think that should be remarked on because when we talk about Man City in previous seasons, we talked about, you know, Otamendi or whomever else, or Stones in his earlier iteration, just wasn't that solid at the back. There was a feeling... Demichelis. Yeah, Demichelis. There was a feeling that City can blow you away, um, but if you weather that storm and you just run at them, you can get at them. Um, That was even in their Centurion season, people felt like that. Um, They just couldn't couldn't weather the storm at the beginning of the game uh, more often than not. So, But that's definitely gone now. 
City far more look far more like a traditional title winning side in that they're able to win ugly, they're able to win close games, they're able to withstand, uh, just hold. They look like Liverpool last season, look able to withstand you know lots of attacks and then score goals and act pragmatically when they need to, and that's something that's changed a lot from their from their previous sides. And yeah, as I say, that's a change that Guardiola deserves massive massive credit for. He's he's a very very class coach. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that change was most illustrated in their in their win against Arsenal 1-0, where they got the goal. And um, usually when, when you go 1-0 up and it goes into the final five minutes, there's like a huge onslaught from the losing team as they try to rescue a point. But City just looked completely calm. They just kept possession and basically strangled Arsenal out of any chance of rescuing any points. And I thought that was something that maybe Guardiola decides of you know, two, three years ago, maybe didn't do. But as Ashwin said, Guardiola has sort of made City into this winning machine whilst keeping a ridiculous amount of clean sheets. With that in mind, I can't wait for Guardiola to put out a 2-1, 2-5 against Munchen Gladbach on Wednesday night and completely screwed up all the sort of defensive pragmatism that he's been doing. Um, do you guys have any sort of anything more to say about these following games? Villa against Leicester, uh, Leicester won 2-1. Uh, United 3, Newcastle 1, uh, comprehensive win there, there for United and Leicester. But then the also the other top four team who won, of course, West Ham, who won 2-1 against Spurs, who are now going to fourth place. Let's talk about West Ham, because obviously at the start of the season, I think if you go back to our preview pods, and indeed many previews from like various podcasts or just journalists, whatever, were calling you know West Ham to be in relegation danger. I don't think anyone predicted them to be... Uh, comfortable top half team, let alone um, you know the European places, let alone fourth place. Um, why are they so good, Lawrence? Um, amazingly, and this is something again, as you said, we wouldn't have predicted at the start of the season. It's it's their manager, David Moyes, has done an amazing job at the London Stadium, and I think that he would he would agree when I say that this is probably his the best side that he's managed since that Everton side that made top four what's something like amazingly something like 15 years ago um they have great players they recruited very well in the summer i think um obviously this goes back to last january but suchek was a transformative signing him and, and rice are a really good platform in west ham's midfield um finally moving on from bloody mark noble um <laughs> Je- jesse lingard again scored scored in this match he People forget how good of a footballer he is, me included. I think that once Lingard, you know, he, he became basically a squad player at Old Trafford and, and because you don't get that much game time, it's the kind of the problem that debate's having right now. You kind of get underrated as a player because, you know, at his peak, maybe three years ago, he was a start at United scoring the winning goal in the FA Cup final. And he's doing fantastic World, now. World Cup hero as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I mean, he did start... Uh, in, in that team alongside Deli Ali. Um and I think that yeah, even people like Craig Dawson just randomly coming in from West Brom have, has done a fantastic job at the half of the defence at West Ham. And I think that that, that Moyes has done a great job and I think now he's finally getting like the plaudits that he he deserves. Yeah, I mean he he obviously took some sort of bad career choices, I'd say. I mean United was unfortunate, but then going to like Sociedad, Sunderland, West Ham initially um, was sort of you know poor choice by him slash didn't work out for various reasons. But obviously, it, it's it's I'm glad he's sort of getting the plaudits that he perhaps deserves at West Ham because you know he did so well at Everton for so many years, 
Um, and then there's just unfortunate to sort of enter the void that was Manchester United. I mean, anyone was going to fail that, similar to sort of Emery on, uh, after Wenger. Um, and, and let's not forget that it was a really brave choice to go back to West Ham, having been so like acrimoniously sacked the first time in favour of a manager that West Ham thought could take them to the next level. Moyes said when he when he took over the job, he said he had unfinished business at West Ham, which I think he's definitely sort of proved has, is correct. Um, a word on Spurs. Uh, oh, go on, Ash. Yeah, I mean, I, I got to echo what Lauren said about West Ham. I'm really impressed. Obviously, no one expected them to be in this position, but here they are. Um, and it's quite refreshing. Um, for those of those people, I would include myself in that, who don't really like the way the clubs run. Um, that's, you know, obviously a bit of a bitter pill to swallow. Um, but that's just, you know, by the by. I'm happy for the fans. Um, and it's good that, that a, a club that, you know, inherited a brilliant st- Olympic Stadium in London. By the way, it should be called the Olympic Stadium. It shouldn't be called the London Stadium. Um, it, I'm happy that a club in that stadium is doing well because it's an important stadium. It's like a British institution. Um, I think, honestly, it's nice also to see a new club. Greg, who sometimes does the podcast as well, um, also commented on this. It's nice to see a new club um, in the top four, top six, um, among, with Leicester there too now and their, their impressive win against Villa. Um, it's nice to see new clubs up and around there, you know, moving things around, making things more interesting. And that's why this season's been quite interesting. But yeah, I think David Moyes has definitely been vindicated. I always thought we should have been given more time at Man United. Um, sacking him that early, I thought was a bit ridiculous. But, you know, especially if you're going to replace him with, with someone, you know, as, as like boring as Van Gaal. Um, but there we go. That's what happened. Um, and yeah, he's, he's, he's vindicated himself now. Um, I think, you know, he, he had a few difficult years, but he persisted. And yeah, I've I got to say I'm happy for him. Um, and it's interesting as well from the perspective that players like Declan Rice, who you'd normally expect to leave, go to Chelsea or United um, or City, they are he what incentive does he have to leave now he's living in london his teams are in and amongst the top four if, if west ham can you know keep maintain this which they can you know they're in london they're, they've got a brilliant opportunity in terms of their tangibles to do really well their owners are are no are no poorer than anyone else's except for maybe man cities um you know they can build on this and do particularly well their stadium's big so they get big ticket revenues post covid obviously geography they benefit a lot from sponsors and investors so I don't see why West Ham can't hold this position. And that means that they can keep players like Declan Rice in a way that they couldn't with people like Payet, etc. Yeah, and also with West Ham, they have a, they have a really good squad, actually. I, I, every season, I always like their squad and I always think they underperform uh, compared to the players they have. And, you know, uh, you know it'd be interesting to see them in Europe. Um, I remember a couple of years ago, they qualified they, for the European League. They went out um, in the playoffs to some Romanian team and then, you know, just haven't been able to get there any, ever since. But it would be interesting to see if, if they can qualify for at least the Europa League. Uh, who knows, they can keep staying in the top four, perhaps, which would not be ideal for fans of Liverpool and Chelsea uh, for me and Ash. But yeah, um, let's move on to uh, European football. The rest of the games we haven't talked about. Uh, Lazio take on Bayern Munich. Um, Bayern Munich has suffered a defeat to Eintracht Frankfurt in the Bundesliga this weekend. Um and yeah, the Bundesliga race is looking quite tight. Bayern Munich actually only two points ahead of Leipzig. Um, also in Europe, uh, PSG lost at home to Monaco 2-0. So Pochettino now has sort of the worst record of any sort of post-Qatari PSG manager for their first 10 games, um, which is, you know, very, very Pochettino-like. Um, and PSG are now third and, and four points behind Lille, who are top. Um, but yeah, Atlanta also play Real Madrid, which will be in a very exciting game. Looking forward to that one. 
Uh, I'm hoping for goals are plenty, especially for the Italian side. Um, the Europa League, Lawrence, did you catch many many Europa, Europa League fixtures on Thursday? We had the first legs of the round of 32 games. Well, from the English perspective, as we mentioned before with Boti, um, United uh, won 4-0 in Turin against Real Sociedad. Um, pretty comfortable performance for them. I, I thought Sociedad would offer a lot more with uh, David Silva and um, Alexandra Isaac, that the hyped-up striker who used to play for Dortmund, I think. Um, and I, I thought that given that Adnan Yanezai chatted so much shit about his time about United, he'd actually do something in this game, but he was quite poor. And I think, um, yeah, this, this means that Solskjaer can sort of give his players a rest in, in the second leg. Uh, just a quick note on United's match on the on the weekend against Newcastle. Um United were poor, but Newcastle were worse, is all that I can really say. And Dan James played well, but he was playing against the championship side. So, um, yeah, I think that, yeah, as I said, United might even give a start to Ahmad Diallo uh, next Thursday against Sociedad. So um, that could be something really interesting to, to watch. And also, by the way, Shola Shortai made his debut for United um, against Newcastle. He's been really hyped up by the United, like, like Mason Greenwood levels of, of hype about his performance in the under-23. He combined really well uh, with Diallo in those youth games, and um, we'll see we'll see what happens uh, in the future with him. Yeah, I saw something interesting about him, which is that he was born in Newcastle in 2004, which means he probably was named after the Newcastle legend Shola Amiobi. I'd, lo- <laughs> I'd nice love it if that was true. Absolutely love That's it. true, that's legendary. <laughs> um, also, just another word on a game for the European League, which obviously is of interest to Ash because his team will be in it next season. Rangers beat Antwerp four three uh, in like a roller coaster game, which had like from what from what I saw, everything it had like a missed penalty, a red card, a handball on the spot, a, a, a goal, a, you know, a goals ruled out for VAR, and yeah, just like lots of goals back and forth. And you know, obviously Giles doing wonders um, with Rangers. They, they, I think they won four one on the weekend against Dundee and are now only like two wins away from the title, which considering it's February is pretty impressive. Um, Celtic have been like crap this season, but still very good from Gerrard and Rangers. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, obviously um, how well they do in the Champions League. I think they'll they'll go into the playoff round for the Champions League. Um, so they'll have one round to qualify for the group stage. Um, it'll be interesting to see I mean, yeah, how Gerrard does there, there. There was some like indication of reforms that Scotland might be given a permanent group stage spot. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but that's the thing. I think that's not any time soon. Yeah, I think it's if it, it's yeah, it's if they sort of Rangers especially do well for like next season. Um, if they perhaps get to the group stage of um, next season, they'll they'll get permanent stage for like the season after. Um, but it's quite good to see Gerard doing well uh, with Rangers. Um, we'll talk more about some some of the more interesting European League games um, when that round concludes. Also in Europe, um, AC Milan played Inter Milan, um, and Inter won this away fixture three uh, 0 um, Lukaku and Lautaro combining for all three goals. Ash, um, talk about the game and how comprehensive this was by Inter. It was good. I mean, um, Handanovic had to make some good saves, so it's not as if this was like a walk in the park. And very and Milan had had notable chances to equalise before um, Inter scored their second goal. But I think Lautaro and Lukaku are linking up really nicely. Lukaku looks dominant as soon as he crosses the halfway line with the ball at his feet. He can run at anyone. He can run past anyone. He's he's like. A flat track bully sounds like quite a pejorative term, but I mean it in like the most compliments possible. He can push anyone out the way. He he can he's fast enough that he can outrun most defensive midfielders. So he can end up one on one with the back four. 
and then he's strong enough that he can shrug people off. Like it's it's a sight to behold, honestly. Um, and it's just amazing. As soon as he crosses the halfway line, you wouldn't put it past him to just run and take a shot. He's brilliant at holding the ball up for some reason. The touch that he had at Man United, which was awful, he's now rectified it and he he holds the ball up and dis- distributes it left and right to overlapping fullbacks. Um, you know, um, it, it, it's honestly like Hakimi, for example, or Perisic. So it, it's like really, really encouraging. Um, and that's just from an Inter perspective. I've spoken on the pod before about how I follow Inter and I really want them to do well. And they've always frustrated me, but they seem to be doing something right for the for once. And Lukaku got his revenge against Ibrahimovic for um, their whatever verbal altercation that 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 few weeks ago. Um, so it was yeah, it was a nice display. After Inter scored the second goal, um, it, it seemed quite comprehensive, and they got into gear. Lukaku with the third goal was magnificent. He deserved that goal. He'd already had a couple of shots on goal, and he should maybe done better with one of them on his left foot. But yeah. Vintage Lukaku, can't wait to see him in the Euros and can't wait to see um, Inter next year in the Champions League. Um, hopefully against an English 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 side, because then I yeah. might go and watch them. Hopefully um, they don't screw it up again. It's yeah, and then, and then hopefully this. against an English side in the group stage and I can go and watch them um, when they come here. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really excited for that. And Inter should now secure out the league. They lead by four points from memory and they don't have any other competitions now to distract them. Just the Scudetto left, so... Um, best of luck to them and yeah I'm really hoping they do well considering how bad Liverpool are doing especially yeah and, and Conte the man who sort of started this Juventus dominance in the, in the um, early part of last decade could be the man to end it um, he'll have won four titles in his last five um, four league titles in his last five seasons of like domestic management and if only he, one, if one point off in the uh, in the one he didn't win yeah exactly um, obviously a man well no because he was the one he didn't win was with Chelsea when we came fifth oh, no, in 2018. I, I but, about last season with Inter, sorry. Oh, right, yeah. But, um, yeah, and no, obviously a great manager um, who I have very passionate, strong feelings about, both positive and negative in some, to some extent. Um, but yeah, Ash, uh, sorry, Lawrence, you said um, in the schedule, uh, talk about Lukaku reaching Lewandowski level. Can you explain that to me? Because whilst yeah. I think Lukaku is phenomenal and has a great skill set, I, I, he just doesn't have, he's not quite at the Lewandowski calibre. Explain what you meant by that. I mean, in terms of uh, in terms of pure finishing, I think nobody can uh, rival Lewandowski at the moment. What I would say about Lukaku, and, and I'm really glad that Ashwin placed uh, like a lot of emphasis on Lukaku, because Lautaro scored two goals in this game, but it was Lukaku's game. I don't want to take anything away from him. Um, and I, the first, I mean, Lukaku for me is the most complete striker in Europe. I think we've, we've spoken about the way that he can run behind the defence, and you really saw that in the third goal where he just, just absolutely burst through. And then that finish at the near post, um, that really reminded me, I don't know if you remember Rooney's goal in 2007 against AC Milan at the near post to win the tie. It reminded me of a Rooney goal against Arsenal where he ran from his own half, except this was Lukaku with the ball at his feet. Yeah, this, uh, yeah. Feet. But uh, that was, was a similar kind of bullish nature, clinical finishing, and just sheer like physical ability, intensity. It reminded me of that. Yeah. And I, I, I think with his hold-up play, which was really emphasised in his assist for the first goal, I, I, I honestly disagree slightly. The only thing I disagree with Ashwin on with Lukaku is I think his touch has never been poor at all. He had great moments of hold-up play at United. I think because of his stature and the way that people perceive him, people will just assume that he has a poor touch. His hold-up play is actually absolutely fantastic. Great cross for Lautaro's goal. And I think that... Because Lukaku is so complete, people and the way that he bullies defenders is absolutely superb. But 
the, the thing that separates him from Lewandowski is probably what Ashwin alluded to, is the fact that Lukaku is kind of seen as a flat-track bully. Now, if he keeps putting performances like this again in big matches like uh, yesterday in Milan, then that, that moniker will pro- possibly, you know, um, won't apply anymore. Lukaku definitely needs to perform better in, in the Champions League. That is something where he's historically at United and at Inter, he's not really performed to that standard. But I think that, that you know, the way that Lukaku is going right now, after his third goal, he's, he, I don't know if you saw, went screamed to the corner flag. He said, what did he say? Something like, um, I've got it here. Me, me, I told you, I'm the fucking best. Um, which is, you know, you know, piped down a little bit, but I mean, he he is doing magical things right now. One word in Lukaku's defence, Lawrence. I agree with almost entirely everything you said. I just think, you know, I don't think he needs to prove much on the European stage. He was magnificent in the Europa League last year, in the la- in the latter stages especially. So, uh, yeah, I, I could take a point about the Champions League, but he's had good European success in at least personally, and he's shown up well at international tournaments too. Um, for example, the last World Cup, I think he played well. To be honest. Um, I think they came third, didn't they, Belgium? Um, and yeah, yeah and, and I think that you know he, he did well. Obviously, it's a, it was a loaded squad; it was a packed squad. But but nevertheless, you know he, he did what he needed to do. Um, but yeah, no, I, I I agree. I think he's physically um, just different to Lewandowski. And Lewandowski's a clinical finisher in a similar way to Miroslav Klose was, but just from a longer range as well. And Lewandowski's kind of like Alan Shearer; he can bang them in, but he's also good in the in the close quarters, good in the air. For his stature, but Lukaku's far more the clinical number nine, but with a traditional number nine, but with a number tens or number eights ability with the ball at his feet, which is a lethal combination. So he's as good as a traditional number nine at running at people, at, at, at um, as good as as them in the air, as good as them in traditional one-on-one finishing. But then he's as good as a number ten or a number eight traditionally in his distribution of the ball left and right, in his pinging of the ball, in his assists, in his vision. And that just makes a brilliant, brilliant combination. Yeah, and yeah you could, you could one of say my that players to watch at the moment. Yeah, I, I'd say like he's a he's a combination kind of of, of Harry Kane and and um, Antoine Griezmann. Uh, but you know that might be too high praise to to afford him. But I I I, I don't think he's quite at the Lewandowski level, as you said, Ashwin. He's a different player. But in terms of who I would prefer in my team, I'm. It is. It is really a toss-up for me. I have to say. I think. I think it depends very much on like the way you try to play, though, as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. They're not. They're not. They're not too comparable that you can just yeah. swap one and you know for another. If you play like Man United or Inter, you'd want Lukaku. If you play like Liverpool or Bayern Munich or Man City, you'd probably want Lewandowski. Yeah, I mean, let's move on to like just briefly discuss another sort of ruthless killer in front of goal. Um, Erling Haaland, who scored twice uh, for Dortmund against Schalke. Um, Schalke 0-4, 0, Dortmund 4, which is always a, a great result, a great scoreline. Nice. I, 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 don't, I, I don't think I did the scoreline justice there by making some sort of pun about it. I don't, I don't think it worked. But anyway, they lost 4 at home to Dortmund, um, and Haaland scored twice, including a really, really good scissor kick. Um, See, I don't know whether it's a scissor. I, I, it's like a combination of a scissor and an overhead kick. It, it's, yeah. it's truly astonishing, honestly. He kind of... At first, I thought, okay, so for guys that didn't see it, it was a sort of speculative cross from from the left hand side to the edge of the box. Harlan with his back to goal, he he jumps up and he kind of hangs for a little bit, in a kind of Ronaldo esque fashion, 
and then manages to sort of score it, as I said, a sort of scissor slash overhead kick with minimal backlift, but amazing power. And he just, it's just a truly astonishing goal. And he is, I talked about Lukaku and how good he, Haaland is, I mean, we, we spoke about him last time, the Haaland-Bappe comparison um, is really hard to, it's, it's very similar to that Ronaldo-Messi thing. Yeah, you um, know what, I, I'm just going to, you know, I think the most sensible thing about the whole Ronaldo Messi debate is the one where you just go like, oh, let's just enjoy them both. Let's just not like focus on comparing them. And, and same thing with Holland and Mbappe. I'm just going to enjoy them. I don't want to get too caught up in them. But I'm saying like better. the playing styles of of Haaland versus Mbappe reminds me of the way that people compare Ronaldo and Messi. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One thing I notice is that obviously Messi and Ronaldo are very different players in the way they play, um, with a ball at their feet and and ever like Ronaldo's a lot more about power. I feel like Mbappe and um Haaland are both are both like evolutions of Ronaldo I don't really see much similarity to Lionel Messi in their game well well, yeah I I, I agree with that yeah both of them are just physically extremely dynamic extremely athletic just in sheer physical ability at being able to jump being able to run being able to and then and then they have Ronaldo's just kind of intensity like the perfect football physique all that kind of stuff whereas you know Messi's far more about trickery um, intricacy. I personally prefer Messi, but that's, if you don't want to compare them, let's not. But um, what Messi's about those things rather than Ronaldo's just sheer physical ability and intensity and 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 effort. And Haaland and Mbappe remind me much more of Ronaldo than than Messi, uh, definitely. It's something that I said on the on the last pod. What I see personally, and I do agree with ostensibly what you say, Ashwin. In terms of how I view the players, I very much see Haaland as that proto Ronaldo. He's just a machine. He's just a machine that just loves scoring goals and does it with just sort of pure metronomical brilliance. Mbappe, he has more flair about him. Do you know what I mean? He, there's, there's a little bit more sort of guile. The way he moves, it's so smooth. The, the, the flair that he shows is more Messi-esque in my opinion. But I, I agree with you. They're both sort of astronomical talents who clearly work very hard in their game. Haaland is like a brutal, like German supercar, efficient, perfect at what it does. You know, perfectly made he, for it. He's like Norwegian. Just he's like he's like a Porsche. He's like a Porsche. Yeah, but they aren't any Norwegian cars. Mbappe's far more like a Ferrari. You know, equally fast, equally precise, but more kind of arty flair. More in that. You know, I think that's a nice comparison. But both very formidable. Also, by the way, Haaland's celebration is so weird. Like, because he's so tall, he kind of like. Around Sancho and Bellingham, he does some sort of like monkey dance, like when he goes up with his arms, sort of waving in the air like this. It's it's really funny. Um, whereas Mbappe's celebration is just like, oh, you know. Anyway, he's just sliding. Thing, this isn't really helpful in a podcast medium, but I am one acting thing, out the celebrations. Yeah, we all know the celebration for this. Yeah. Uh, one thing that I've said about almost preemptively about Harden is that obviously Norway aren't like a formidable, you know, European powerhouse. So, you know. The, the chance you may have of seeing him in an international tournament won't be that regular. You know, they probably will qualify for a Euros or World Cup in the future in like the next decade, but he won't be like as often as, you know, we also see Mbappe on the biggest stage. Um, it's, you know, it's one of those debates. I mean, you have all seen the likes of players like George Weah winning the Ballon d'Or for like, you know, most, you know, Liberia didn't qualify for a major tournament. It could be that sort of scenario again that could hinder him in terms of any sort of global proper recognition. But then again, I think Norway is he, is currently un, undergoing a bit of a resurgence. Yeah, right? they, I, yeah no, they they are they've got some good players. Martin, I, mean, I think Arden's point is fair. I mean, Norway aren't France is the point. 
Yeah, I mean, whilst they will probably qualify for Euros and probably a World Cup, it won't. Uh, I don't think they'll be qualifying with like every international tournament's regularity. Is my point more hard? And they're like, not going like, to be getting to the final or semi-final. Yeah, 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 I agree. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so you know, it may be that in the future, you, you, you people will be saying, "Oh, Harden got you know played for Norway at the World Cup, but didn't score in the group stage, and they went out of the group stage." Oh, he can't be good. It will be that sort of debate that will sort of make it a bit crap, basically. But I mean, I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing them both play. Uh, anyway, um, I think that's it for today. We'll wrap it up there. Um, we've got a lot to cover uh, next time round where we look at the European games midweek and focus on the domestic games, which obviously you know the season ramping up now. Um, but yeah, cheers, Ash. Cheers, Lawrence. Hope you had a good pod. Cheers, um, Thanks to Boti as well for talking to us about the La Liga um, situation earlier on. And yeah, see you guys next time when you can't podcast with kids. <laughs>